Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is the author of a novel that Heather O'Neill described as a brilliant thriller about the infinite corridors and wondrous nooks and crannies of women's minds. Here is Carrie Jenkins to introduce herself. Um, hi, I'm Carrie Jenkins. I am the author of Victoria Sees It. Uh, I'm also a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, and I also write nonfiction and poetry. Carrie's book, Victoria Sees It, is a finalist for the 2022 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. In our conversation, we talked about madness and how it has been used to silence women like Victoria, the character at the center of Carrie's novel. We also discussed how Cambridge became the setting for the book. Carrie starts our conversation with a reading from Victoria Sees It. My aunt and uncle would send me to bed at around 10, but I never wanted to sleep. They made me turn out the light so I would read clandestinely under the eiderdown, diving into this secret study space with a tiny torch, originally from a key ring, that was dim enough not to shine through the covers and give me away. The practice gave me headaches, and might have been what ruined my eyesight, but it kept my mind alive. The night of the headmistress's phone call, I was put to bed on schedule, and had just pulled out my flashlight to continue the mysterious affair at Styles when I heard my uncle's raised voice. My aunt and uncle argued often, the sparks of sound seeping through the house's wobbly door frames and porous floorboards, eventually settling into its nooks and crannies like ash. Usually I didn't listen because it didn't help anybody. This time was different. I realized right away that I needed to hear the whole conversation, not just the loud side. I quietly snuck, onto the dark square landing at the top of the stairwell, from which, laying myself out flat on my stomach, I could dangle my head through the space between the top two banisters. This afforded me a line of sight as well as good audibility, while I remained minimally visible. My uncle was pacing. My aunt was opening a bottle of wine. And the government assistance will help, she was saying. My uncle snorted. Don't see why they get to tax my salary just to pay for kids like her to go to some stuck-up private school. Nothing wrong with the comp. Nothing. Did me okay, didn't it? He paused ominously. Or are you saying not? Of course, no. I just meant she's gifted. She deserves a chance. A chance, he was snarling now, of a better life. That's it, isn't it? She's better. Better than me. Better than this shit. He swung his arm around knocked a china dog from the mantelpiece, and swore. My aunt scurried around him and picked the dog up off the carpet. Fucking gifted. She's a little freak is what she is. For God's sake, be quiet, my aunt hissed. My uncle lowered his voice a little and growled, well, you know it. Look at her. You don't need to worry about it at all. I did some sums, and when you bear in mind she'll be on full board at the school, with all the money that will save us here at home. She held out a piece of paper, torn from the notebook by the phone. 
My uncle ripped it in half and dropped it on the floor. I don't need to see any more of your plans for how to spend my money. I'll see to her packing. I'll take care of everything. I saw my aunt's posture shift a little. And she'd be out of the way. This got no response except a hiss. Little freak, just like her mother. Please, James, you can't blame Victoria. She's a child. You don't fucking tell me what I can't do. My uncle snatched the open wine bottle from my aunt's hand and stormed out of the house, slamming the back door. In the morning, I woke up before everyone else and went out to what we called the back garden, a sunless paved area between our house and the alley full of rubbish bins, where my aunt tended a row of potted plants with perennial optimism. There were several small pieces of green glass scattered around the fence. Aimlessly, I began to pick them up, and when I had them all, I tried to put them in the flat-lidded dustbin, but with my hands full of the glass fragments, I couldn't lift the lid properly, and I ended up dropping most of the glass and cutting my fingers. I came back into the kitchen to wash them. My aunt was up now, listening to one of her favorite mixtapes while she did last night's washing up. I stuck my hands in the sink, and she asked what was wrong. I told her I'd been tidying some glass in the back garden. And she flushed. Oh no, that's my fault. I dropped a bottle outside last night when I was taking the rubbish out. I thought I'd cleared it all up. She hurried out to finish the job, as Tammy Wynette sang to me that, after all, he's just a man. Later that day, she told me she was coming to sleep in my room for a little while because her snoring was keeping my uncle awake at night. And he needs to sleep very well, you see, so he's fresh for work in the morning. It'll be fun. I can bring up the camp bed. The camp bed was ex-army supply, a piece of khaki canvas slung across a folding frame. It was not comfortable. When we had to put up a guest overnight, my aunt would set it out in the front room, covering it with blankets and donating her own pillow. It took up all the remaining floor space in my tiny bedroom. I never heard her snore, but we didn't have to share for very long. I started at the boarding school that September. The school was huge. Better still, it was full of corridors and tunnels and passageways. There was even a footbridge over a busy road which connected the main building to another newer block with multiple levels. This meant you could wander all over the entire complex for as long as you needed to, all the while appearing to be going somewhere. It was wonderful. During break times and lunch hours, I'd walk around humming to myself, imagining I was really an old woman who'd been given this one chance to go back in time and see what her secondary school used to look like. Sometimes I narrated it to myself. Ah, yes, this is where the home economics teacher tried to show us how to use a sewing machine, and Stephanie showed a needle right through her finger. Poor Stephanie. In the evenings, the other girls made friends. They watched Grease on repeat in the TV room, pored over teen magazines, did each other's hair, and secretly passed around romance novels with all the sex scenes dog-eared. I read a huge brown hardback volume called The Complete Sherlock Holmes with original illustrations from The Strand. It took me a very long time. When I finished, I started it again. Everyone shifted their conversations to whispers when I came close, and there were a few girls who walked into me on purpose. I vaguely registered this as strange, but I didn't quite get the message until one November morning in the first term. I'd spent the 20-minute morning break 
walking around in the cavernous underground locker rooms, eating a bag of crisps and thinking about the haunting catechism from the adventure of the Musgrave ritual. Whose was it? Is who is gone? Who shall have it? He who will come. What was the month? The sixth from the first. Where was the sun over the oak? Where was the shadow under the elm? How was it stepped? North by ten and by ten, east by five and by five, south by two and by two, west by one and by one, and so under. What shall we give for it? All that is ours. Why should we give it? For the sake of the trust. As the bell rang for the end of break and I came into French, I saw that someone had written in large white letters on the chalkboard, Victoria is a major wazzock. Thank you. My first question for you is uh, my icebreaker question. So it's entirely <laughs> unrelated to Victoria sees it, or it might be, who knows. Um, <laughs> but if you could read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, what would oh. it be and why? <clears throat> yeah, I actually have an easy answer to this one. It's a TV show and um, it's called Red Dwarf. It's a British sci-fi comedy from sitcom from the 1980s and 90s. It actually ran later than that. They started remaking it, but I, I would watch the original first six seasons and I don't need the rest. It, it sort of jumped the shark to that. <laughs> and why? Um, so I, I watched the same show over and over all the time. I've watched it. I must have watched every episode of those five seasons hundreds of times. Um, I find it incredibly comforting. It's a piece of my childhood. The the humor is now a part of my identity. It's so it's so deeply ingrained in my um, psyche, my consciousness. Um, and I just I've always loved that show so much. I I've always found it hilarious. And when I first started watching it, I was sort of too young to be allowed to watch grown-up comedy. So, you know, it was it was super cool even back then. And it's <laughs> it's never it's never lost that nostalgia value for me. It's like the comfort food of TV. Yeah. Are you able to find it online, or do you have it recorded somehow? <laughs> um, it's on. So there's a TV subscription service called BritBox, which is mostly the old British TV. Um, so I use that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it has all of Red Dwarf. It has all of the old Agatha Christie BBC adaptation, uh, ITV adaptations. It's really good. Yeah. My mom has BritBox, so we discuss yeah. it often. <laughs> oh, you, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk about Victoria Sees It. So I, I would love to hear a little bit about the origin story of this novel. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's an interesting one. I I set out to write a short story and I failed. Um, I was in I was doing I, I was in the um, creative writing MFA at UBC and I was doing a summer intensive fiction class and I it, it was I was trying to write you know short story about this girl slash young woman who turned out turned into Victoria although I hadn't named her at that point. And the the shape and structure of the story were already in that thing that I tried to write that was meant to be short. <laughs> um, but it was really obvious as soon as I started that what I actually had was a, a bare outline framework of, of a book length piece. So um, that's the sort of technical origin story. I think the the more interesting origin story is that this is this is pieces of pieces of things that I've needed to talk about for a long time 
and had never found the right way to to do it until I started writing fiction which mm-hmm. was pretty much in that in that summer class yeah I mean at the heart of this story is is Victoria and she's such an interesting character for for many reasons which I'm sure <laughs> we'll start to talk about but I, I would love to know what drew you to that character and kind of um you know, they say you need to have characters that we both like and hate that carry us through the writing process. So what mm-hmm. was it about her that that you were really stuck to? So she emerged as the voice that was telling the story really early on. Um, and actually, even when I was trying to write it as a short story, the the first line, not the prologue, but the first line of chapter one, my mother stopped talking when I was born. That was already the first line. And it just kind of, she she just started from there and she kept going. Um, and and that piece, of, I mean, that piece of her feels really important too, that, that her mother stops talking as she comes into existence. Um, there was there, a lot, of, in a lot of ways she became or, or turned out to be a vehicle for an exploration of intergenerational trauma, especially around mental health related issues. And that is, um, I mean, that's one of the pieces of the puzzle I was talking about that I, things I've needed to talk about for a long time have never found a way into. Um, these, are, these are things that haunt me, that haunt my family. Um, I, I come from a long line of, of women who've all struggled and had, you know, in, in many ways, terrible experiences with mental illness and um, have, uh, I hadn't found ways to, deal with that for myself or to talk about it for myself Victoria became the the voice who could talk about it for me (laughs) um and she I I sort of ended up letting her borrow a lot of my history so she goes to the same places where I've been and she follows me around in those ways um but she's able to say things I haven't been able to say (laughs) she has she has a voice that's not my voice it's not um and I don't think it's, um, I, th- I think it's fair to say she's, um, she's an alter ego of how things might have gone terribly wrong for me. <laughs> and I was kind of lucky that they didn't. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of what draws me to her, her, her ability both to, um, to speak when I, in ways that I carry can't, <laughs> um, but to say things that I think need to be said somehow. And, um, that's that I, I don't think I like her very much, but I feel I feel for her mm. um, a lot. And I think that makes her really compelling. Like, I think I hate her in real life. I wouldn't spend time with this person. It'd be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, but I really I, I really want her to be OK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that Victoria goes to many of the places that that you've been. In, and mm-hmm. I mean, much of the book is set in in Cambridge at Cambridge and and I know from your bio that you also mm-hmm. spent time there um yeah. why did it feel important to 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 ground mo- most of the story in that place the Cambridge the the city and the university especially they as soon as I realized what kinds of trauma this character wanted to talk about Cambridge took on its own life as a sort of character in the story and it becomes symbolic. I mean, it's representing uh, it's representing a lot. It's representing old established institutions 
in this very British way that is about power and old money and tradition. Um, it's also obviously it's record, re representing academia and the power struggles and the sort of quagmires and the nasty little petty corners of stuff that people get swept into within those um, within those supposedly ivory towers that are kind of different color from the inside. And so, so Cambridge, for anyone who's ever physically been there, it's, um, this might sound familiar, but what I'm trying to convey when I give my descriptions of it is how it can feel like it's out, it's stuck out of time. It's, it's, um, there's buildings there that shouldn't, but they're thousands of years old. They shouldn't really have survived. It's weird that they're still there. Um, but they're there because of the incredible power, money, uh, influence that this institution has had. And so they symbolize all of that, as well as a history that is at times as much fiction as it is facts, um, because it's a history that serves the tellers of it. And those are the people who've um, had the power to control the narrative. And so... Cambridge is, is it's haunting, it's beautiful. It's also, to me, it's terrifying. It's a dark place. Um, it's all of that at once and it's full of potential. And it's also full of this sort of devastating, stifling, airless feeling. And those sound like a contradiction and, and they sort of are, but it, it manages to hold all of this at once. Um, and um, it, so, so it became, it became the, the setting in which Victoria's um, hopes and dreams and nightmares and everything would just kind of swirl around her and and boil and eventually bubble over. Yeah, I, I something that that I was really I really thought about more and more as I read through the book was our how our sense of reality what our sense of reality is and how precarious that can actually be. Um, mm -hmm. I could really relate to some of the thoughts, you know, I have them as I'm falling asleep where you really start to question what's real and not we're not real mm -hmm. as your brain is sitting in that weird kind of space. Mm -hmm. um, and I might be reading into that, but but I I was I would love to hear like what you were thinking around that idea of reality and and fact and fiction as as you said because it seems like this book is really toying with what we know and what we don't know and mm -hmm. do they sit in separate camps or do they somehow you know like a Venn diagram overlap in the middle <laughs> yeah um and I mean you're not reading in at all or, or you are but you're, you're meant to <laughs> I mean I'm I, I I invite um the, the book is sort of deliberately uh inviting um interpretations that can conflict in various ways and that's part of um, what I'm trying to do with it, which is a, uh, has a lot to do with how much of uh, reality is is in our interpretations of it, is in our shared interpretations of it with other people versus our own perceptions that may not be shared by other people. Um, and so one of the things that, I mean, Victoria is uh, one of the ways that she enables, she's a good vehicle for me to explore this is that she's clearly um, struggling herself to understand what's real and not at just every level, right? What's re what's real morality? What's really good or bad? What's real as in what's physically happened to her in in the past? Like what who what is what are the people around her doing? What are they saying? What and more importantly, what are they meaning? 
Um, she's not someone who's very good at knowing those things. And, and she also knows that she's someone who's not very good at knowing those things. Um, and then eventually, you know, not to give too much away about the story, but um, her mental health comes into question in various ways that lead her to, to feel herself challenged by the outside world as to what's real and what isn't. Um, and it becomes, um, for me, this part of the story, I, I, don't, I am actually not invested in the question of who's right and wrong on what's real in any sense of the word. Like I, as the author, don't know. Like I don't, there isn't something I know that I'm not revealing at certain points about what's real and what isn't. Um, rather, what I think that um, the book is for, what for me it was for, is to, to find a better way into that question that doesn't start from the assumption that, oh, the majority of people are right and um, the crazy lady is wrong. <laughs> and, and that rather invites you to kind of see from the perspective of the woman who's wearing that label um, and why she's wearing it. And um, so what one of the, one of my, favorite things that anyone said about this book um, was uh, Heather O'Neill, who was um, gracious enough to, to write a blurb for this, said that um, I'm pursuing the idea of women's madness, its origin structures. And then she says, and most radically, its insights. And that was the moment where I thought, oh, my God, she gets this. She gets it. Like, the insights of women's madness is is really what I'm after. Like, what is lost when we rule out certain narratives as crazy talk um, that that's very easy to do right especially historically under uh, our patriarchal and white supremacist colonial past certain kinds of people very easy to dismiss their narratives as oh they're just they're crazy they're angry they're whatever else and uh, either lock them away in whatever kind of institution or just dismiss and ignore them and and this this book is about how much of, of reality, um, how much of the story is is either lost or flat out overwritten um, when we do those things. Um, and so the that question for me is more important than the question of you know who's right or wrong about the the various reality based questions in that come up in the book. Um, and that's I mean that's part of why I. I I can't really, I felt like it would be wrong of me as the author for this book to have a, a stand on those questions. I, I need to not know because all I really know is what Victoria is telling me. Um, so she's she's in control of the narrative. She is narrating it to me. Um, there's, there's another, there's a secondary narrative voice in the book. And that narrative voice, I, I also treat as, you know, from my point of view, authoritative. On, on the question of what's going on. But that's all, that's all I really know. I'm not sort of standing behind them feeling like I know what the answer is to any of the questions. Yeah. I, I loved the the investigation of, of women's madness and crazy women. It, it's something that I have written about myself and, um, and, and that whole thing too about, you know, the way women are, are told are, we're kind of like taught from a young age not to trust ourselves. Um, it's right? not, it's not even that people on the outside don't trust us. It's that we're constantly taught to question our own truths and our own stories. And, and for, yeah. for women like Victoria, who, 
have a family with women with mental health issues, it's like that just comes led mm-hmm. to a whole other layer to it. Yeah, exactly. And it's almost like well, you you're already labeled before you even started talking. Right? <laughs> you've you've already gotten a little bit discounted before anyone's even heard what you have to say. And and you're right. It's absolutely it gets internalized um, really strongly over time and and part of my hope was that victoria could also her her internal monologues enable us to see a little bit of that progression right in real time as she starts to deal with it constantly being made clear to her that her stories don't fit and aren't considered to be acceptable or correct or whatever else and you know in 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 a lot of ways i'm her her particular or some some aspects of her story um, make that dramatic and make it kind of but but this is the thing that I think happens to pretty much every woman <laughs> and and to a lot of other people who are subject to systemic oppression in similar ways right we we get told our stories aren't the real stories so we have to consciously be uh, constantly be running both our stories and the ones that we're told are the quotes real stories even when they don't gel together and we have to maintain that kind of parallel awareness of both of the stories in a lot of ways it is it is like splitting realities in two and, and trying to live in more than one at once and wondering you know it what if if anything in there is is really an objective truth <laughs> um, and how much of both uh, you know I end up I end up thinking that a lot of this a lot of this boils down to the role of power in narrative storytelling and dominant storytelling especially yeah well, and then the other piece that comes into that that we see with with Victoria is the way that all those those labels of hysteria and madness and and women being crazy it isn't just a tool to make us um, to question our our truths but it actually works to actively silence um, mm-hmm. with women's stories and other folks who who are systematically mm-hmm. oppressed as well um, and I wondered if you wanted to speak to that part of it too. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, p- part of what happens to Victoria is a process of, of uh, shutting down and and getting into certain certain roles where she's considered acceptable and she's accepted and she's successful and on the outside everything seems to be going really well, um, and that happens as a reward in effect for stifling the parts that are um, considered to be wrong or troublesome, and that that silencing that's the that's the part that um, that scares people, right? The part that's the part that goes quiet is the part that is. Um, but but what I'm really trying to explore is why people are scared of it. What's what's so frightening in there? What's so threatening? And you know, I feel like if we can understand that whole process better, and the reasons behind it, and the fact that it happens at all, will all of us be a lot better place to push back on it and to realize actually no I'm not gonna what <laughs> I'm not going to just shut down my crazy side my my thoughts that are considered to be mad thoughts I've got to listen to some of that sometimes uh, or you know not just my own other people's when they come to me and I feel inclined to dismiss certain narratives um I think if we have a better sense of why those instincts to dismiss or ignore or silence happen, why they, where they come from, um, then we've got a better shot at this. At, I mean, addressing this problem. I, I have to say though, I like 
all of that sounds like I'm optimistic that we're going to solve this. And I'm actually not really very optimistic. I'm, I'm misanthropic. It's about six out of seven days a week, I'm a horrible misanthrope. And then I get my one little optimistic window <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon, and then it's all gone by Monday. <laughs> Um, I can 100% see see all of that. I, you know, there are glimmers of hope, but then uh, the wave just crashes down, doesn't it? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know you are busy with work at UBC and you're probably, uh, but are you working on, are you working on any writing projects these days? Um, I am. So I have a nonfiction book called Sad Love that's about to come out. It's already out in the UK. It's about to come out in North America next month. Sad Love, Romance and the Search for Meaning. Um, I'm also in very early stages of another campus novel. So I haven't started really talking about that one in public yet. But yeah. um, that's, that is in the works. And I, I have absolutely loved getting immersed in that aspect of this. Uh, project Victoria sees it the campus the all of the kind of potential for drama and for um, horror and for just creepiness and tension and um, seems to me like a university is just such a great environment for all of those kind of things and by great I mean awful and terrible and amazing all at once it's, it's very intense they're very intense places I think university campuses so I I really want to work more in that kind of genre um and that's so there is something in the works that's a, a collaborative project um and yeah I mean that's there's there's a couple of other non-fiction things on the go um but that's that's sort of where I am right now that was Carrie Jenkins. Her book, Victoria Sees It, is a finalist for the 2022 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Jenny Boychuk. Her book, Antonyms for Daughter is a finalist for the 2022 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.